0: This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend Sean Lake co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself. My nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter. That has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Now, Bridget is a veteran of the law enforcement profession, then transitioned into the legal profession. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into policing, SWAT roundups, the war on drugs, the power of yoga, empowering first responders with legal knowledge, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast making it easier for others to find and this is a free library for you planet earth so all i ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so i can get them to every single person who needs to hear them so with that being said i introduce to you bridget Truxillo. enjoy Bridget, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan and a follower.
0: Well, first question where on planet Earth are we finding you?
1: I am in Houston, Texas, currently looking out on a beautiful sunny sky. Today we're lucky it's 64 degrees, so winter time for Texas.
0: Now, I'm sitting here in Ocala in uh, Marion County, so you were oh, yeah. you were here for a while, weren't you, in this area?
1: I was. I lived in Gainesville for 12 years, and I love Marion County. It's beautiful. Like If I lived there, I would want to own a horse because it's just so beautiful. Yeah. In fact, my former captain ended up being the sheriff there temporarily when the sheriff got booted out. Um, and if I had still been in florida and i was an attorney but i had already become an attorney by the time he did that but i when i i think i, I called him or something because we stay in we keep in touch and i, I remember talking to him at the time saying man if i still live there i would be knocking on your door saying you need to hire me to come work for you because i just love that area and i, I loved working for him which is i think a rarity in the first responder world to have a captain that you can say you love working for
0: Beautiful. Well, I want to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Oh, my. Okay. I was born in Monroe, Louisiana, Um, and that's North Louisiana. Uh, My parents are both from very small towns in North Louisiana. One's called Jonesboro Hodge, which has a paper mill. And if you've ever lived near a paper mill, you know they're very stinky. Um, And I hated it when I was growing up. Although now when I go back, it's almost a nostalgic, like I almost take a deep breath when I am near it. Um, My mom's from this very small town called Arcadia. Um, When I was just like kindergarten, first grade in Jonesboro, and then my parents divorced. I don't remember when. When my mom started moving when she got remarried and we went, so we moved in second grade to Missouri, third grade to Oklahoma, fourth grade to Arkansas, and I'm all one of these cities within about two hours of each other, and then we stayed there. And I think seventh grade, we moved back to Louisiana, um, and then I finished middle school. I mean, uh, yeah, junior high and high school, and then I hated high school. I think girls are absolutely vicious, and or at least that was my experience. And so then I left. Um, I decided I was either gonna go to LSU or Louisiana Tech, where everybody I knew was going to school, and I didn't want that experience anymore. So I went to the University of Florida, Go Gators um, and didn't know anybody. And then turns out my dad is one of six. Um, and all of my dad's siblings had moved over uh, over a long period of time had moved from Louisiana to the same town in Florida. Winter Haven. Um, And so I thought I was going to be going to the University of Florida and not knowing anybody. And I looked beyond so tough. And then turns out I have like 82 cousins around the area and they went to University of Florida. And and this is a strange, maybe funny story. So I had this really awful boyfriend in high school and he was trying to make himself sound all smarter than me and said that he had gone accepted to Florida. And I was like, well, if you can do it, I can do it. And so I applied to Florida as well. I got in and then I had no idea the difference between FSU and the University of Florida. Thank goodness I applied to the right school, which is Florida, not FSU. Um, and he had applied to FSU and I didn't know it. So he ended up not going there, but um, that's, a, that's ultimately how I ended up applying to the University of Florida. Cause I had this crappy boyfriend in high school who made me sound not as smart as him. And I was like, up yours buddy I could get into so and then my mom is one of two so I mean I loved having the huge family with my dad uh, we're all very very lucky we have a very very loving family we all still get together in Florida every year I have so many cousins and all my cousins now have kids and it's the best three days of my year I mean obviously I have kids too so I have a lot of good days but it's I look forward to it all year long because it's like Sixty-something people when we all get together, and I'm very lucky. I haven't lost any aunts or uncles yet. My dad still has all of his siblings, and you know, that's not going to last too much longer. So it's precious time. So I'm very lucky. I grew up, even though I had divorced parents, with very, very loving parents and a lot of loving family members. So it was pretty good.
0: Beautiful. Well, when I heard you in the uh, off-duty podcasting, it was called again. You, I noticed immediately. You kind of. Um, Your heckles went up when you reflected on high school for a brief moment. So a lot of us in uniform, I've discovered through this podcast, have elements of childhood trauma. And I think subconsciously it drives us towards the kind of protector role for a multitude of reasons. So you talk about a loving family. Were there elements of the childhood, you know, and if you want to expand even on why high school was bad, that you would think were contributing factors to, you know, trauma later on?
1: Oh, I can hundred percent tell you that me becoming going to law enforcement, me going out for SWAT team is highly contributed to the boyfriend that I had in high school. Um, and and when I was growing up, I didn't know any difference. So you move and you go and you move and you go. And I had my brother, uh, by the way, I have a brother and a sister. I'm in the middle. Um, they're all very tall by the way. So my, my brother's, my, my sister's 5'10", and then there's me, and I'm 5'5", almost 5'5", but I claim being 5'5", and then my brother is almost 6'6", and so they're all very tall, and I joke around to say that I got all the brains, and they got all the height, which is so not like true. My brother and sister are both very smart and kind and generous and funny, like me, Um But moving around like that, especially once you get into like the middle age years, is really hard. Um, And I'm I'm seeing it now. I have a daughter. I have three kids myself. My oldest is almost eleven, and even in fifth grade, for her, it started in like the end of third, definitely fourth. And her little group seems to be maybe just a little extra dramatic. But just seeing that girls, they're starting to be so critical of each other, and then knowing that that I was moving in the midst of all of that, and moving in seventh grade to come back to a school where I didn't know anybody and it was a small school was absolutely awful. The, f- the whole first year, I just felt like, I don't really remember the seventh grade year. I just remember not wanting to go back because I would spend summers with my dad, summer, spring break. So I'd you know, do the school year and then I would leave and go and be gone. And so it came back. And I remember eighth grade being a little bit better, but then high school, just girls were are so mean. And I am sure that I have a, a chip on my shoulder in that way where I do not like when people are treated unfairly for no reason, or just, just cause, just cause you're new or just cause you have freckles on your face. Like I have red curly hair and freckles. And when I was growing up because I was already, already the new girl, I didn't want to be quote unquote different. I wanted to just fit in. I just didn't want to be this person. Like, who are you? Do you like me? Do you not? And man, no, my daughter's been with the same groups since so she was two. So I could see now that that stuff Still happens anyway, but 100%. It affected me. Number one, being okay with doing something that's different. Meaning, nobody I've ever known has been a cop, or that I went out for SWAT, and there are no other girls doing that. Certainly, nobody else in my family. My dad thought I was nuts, and he was not happy about it. Um,
0: but even to this
1: day, I am super sensitive to. I don't even like sarcasm. I don't. I just don't like mean. I don't like. You know, if somebody does something wrong, there's consequences for that, but doing that kind and treating people fair and then always looking out for the person who might feel like they're on the outside. Like My daughter had a, two new girls come into her class this year, and I just kept telling her, Rosalie, make sure you make them feel comfortable. Make sure you make them feel like they're part of the group. And so choosing law enforcement is, number one, I wanted to do it because I wanted a job that required me to be fit because I did it anyway, and I thought it would be cool that if I have a job that just helps maintain that throughout life. But for sure, having that part of there's right and wrong, and I want to be part of the right. I want to be able to. I want to be a part of helping make things right. Because to me, it was very black and white. And then I went to the narcotics unit, where you can learn that there's lots of gray areas. <laughs> but yeah, there, certainly there's a chip on my shoulder through growing up and moving around a lot, and then the experience of high school that led me to sort of giving everybody the middle finger and saying, "All right, well, let me show you. This is what I'm going to do now."
0: Love it. Yeah, there was an element of that for me too. And it was a, I was told I couldn't do a whole bunch of things because of my vision when I was younger. I was very, very small, very small and awkward. I didn't have my growth spurt till I was 18. So it it wasn't like I was consciously thinking about that. I wasn't bullied. I, you know, I was, was, the I guess, the nice kid. There wasn't really any, any like popular groups as it were, but wasn't, you know, disliked, I hope. But uh, definitely wasn't thought that one day he'd be a firefighter, you know, <laughs> in another country. Yeah. Um, yeah, we talked about already working out. So, what were you doing? What what sports are you playing? What was your kind of athleticism back then?
1: Well, this is gonna be funny too. Um, I was a cheerleader, <laughs> so I went from cheerleader to SWAT team. Um, also, because I moved around a lot, um, we when we were moving and in different communities, you know, there was the softball or the basketball. And I've always considered like m- maybe in my next life I'll be an athlete. That was one of the things I loved about SWAT team the most was all the training we got to do, and also, and I've, I've said this in other podcasts, but that we we competed in SWAT Roundup International in Orlando every year, and they still that team still Elledge County Sheriff's Office SWAT team still does, and in fact they've won it more than once. Um, I, those were some of my best days, like getting to just train for a living, um, and so I was never, and then when we moved back. To to louisiana i didn't do a sport i ended up choosing cross-country just so i'd have to do pe <laughs> and then i was mad that they actually made us run long distances <laughs> um
0: <laughs> didn't read the small print
1: uh so i think when i was about 16 several things my mom was going through a divorce again and i saw what was happening to her financially where it just ended up getting being in a bad place financially after it. And I just I distinctly remember thinking to myself, I will never be in a position where somebody can ruin me. And so that became a big driving force to me. Like I and, and I took it too far for a while. Like I can do this on my own. I don't need you. I don't need anybody to help me. Um thank goodness I didn't meet my now husband until I was almost 30 to get over some of that. But um because it did significantly impact relationships too. But um it was just me wanting to like prove a point. And so I would run to be healthy. And I just enjoyed that. I think, you know, I talk a lot about in wellness training, that the physical aspect is also a mental aspect and a spiritual aspect because, and I learned early on that that was a wellness tool for me, um, that I could be pissed off and then go for a run and be okay. So there wasn't really a sport. And truly although it can be a sport, my trailing squad was not. <laughs> Like that. In fact, we didn't have to really try out because there wasn't really enough people to be on the squad anyway. Um, but then, you know, once I got, went to college and I um, on my own, and I just stuck with that. And then, just kind of, like I said, I just, you know, then I started working for a health club, the Gainesville Health and Fitness Center, and I love that. And and then I decided to become a cop because I. The week after I graduated from the University of Florida, like thank you for my degree. Now I'm going to go to do something completely different.
0: So, well, firstly, when you were at high school, what were you dreaming of? Because I know your degree was definitely not law enforcement related.
1: No. Um, (laughs) I watched The Firm when I was in high school with Tom Cruise and thought, that looks cool. Not realizing that the reality of a tax attorney's life, which that's what Tom Cruise did in that movie. He went into it being a tax attorney. Which that just sounds like I could pull my fingernails off one at a piece, especially even now that I am an attorney. I thought oh, that looks cool. I'm sure that's what being an attorney is like. <laughs> um, and so I went to college thinking, I'm going to go to law school, I'll be a tax attorney. Ugh. And then my first semester of law school, no, of college, just threw everything up, it was just turned everything upside down. And I think within the next year, I switched my degree to engineering. All. Also, not because I knew what that meant. It's just my uncle was an engineer, and I wanted to change it to something. And I thought, oh, that, you know, he seems happy. I'll just become an engineer. And that was awful. Um, I stuck with that for four years. But it literally did not, the idea of law enforcement did not happen for me. Until my last year of school, of college, I realized, oh, crap. I got to do something after this. And I was working at the time. I'd made, I I withdrew from college my fourth year. So my fourth year of engineering, and I withdrew from school and went to New Zealand by myself. And I thought my dad would never speak to me again. But it was awesome. And um, But for my dad being super upset with me, I would, it was totally worth it. Because um, if you can't tell, I'm really close with my dad. Um, and I came back from that trip, and I was having to work for myself. my dad withdrew all support after that took my car back didn't give me any money for anything and I was working full-time at O2B Kids in Gainesville Florida and going to school and then I realized oh this school thing's gonna come to an end and I joke around and say that I watched G.I. Jane and I thought it was cool and decided I would join the Navy SEALs I'm just kidding because I don't want to offend the Navy SEALs at all um but that just got me thinking, and like law enforcement, and the boyfriend that I had at the time was very encouraging in so many ways. And he'd say, "Oh, you know, law law enforcement, great. Let's talk about it. You know, what what kind of law enforcement? You know, or I want to be, you know, I, I want to own a trash truck service. Great, let's talk about it. We you know, what kind of trash truck service? He would just we, he would talk about anything and um, helped encourage that." And then ultimately I decided, yeah, I want I'm gonna do FBI or DEA, something like that, at the federal level. And then to get there, I became a local cop because they told me I was just too young at the time. I talked to somebody at the FBI and they said, Yeah, you might be qualified, but you're just too young. So go work for a while and try again in about four years. So I became a local cop to try and get there. So
0: Brilliant. And
1: then because because I was a local cop, <laughs> I decided I wasn't I didn't want to do any of it.
0: Well, firstly, the way that you chose degrees reminds me of the god-awful political system that we have at the moment. If you just put your face and your name in enough places in the neighborhood, people will just go, well, Mm -hmm. I'll just check them. I recognize that, which is the worst way of choosing. I recognize that means
1: I'm going to check the box. Yeah,
0: Horrible way for education or the health of your country. (laughs) Secondly, one of my favorite places on planet Earth is New Zealand. I went there, I went around the world, and, and we were there for... I think it was three weeks. We went away from the, t- the north end of North Island down to the south end of yeah, South Island in Queensland. the same. So, yep. so tell me what what took you to that country, and tell me about your experience there.
1: Again, yeah, my boyfriend at the time, he and his best friend, who they ended up starting O2B Kids together. So, if you, if you, by the way, if you live, if you're listening to this and you live anywhere in Florida, especially if you have any kids, you should check out O2B Kids. They they have multiple facilities now. It started in Gainesville. They're in Gainesville, Jacksonville, Orlando. So unfortunately I don't think they have one in Ocala yet, but they are, they've significantly expanded over the years. Um, It goes from daycare through children's activity center. It's amazing. Um, And he and Andy, so Danny Stevens and Andy Sherrard, started OGB kids. They traveled around the world for a year and say, so they had been to New Zealand. And when I felt like I was said, I was in my fourth year of engineering and I was just absolutely miserable. And Several times in my life, I've thought, if this is what I'm supposed to, like, there has to be a meaning to this. Like, when I when I was in college, I thought, this can't be what I'm supposed to do. There has to be some, like, if this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, it has to mean something. At least it has to mean something to me, or it has to mean something in the world. Same thing happened to me once I got into the law firm world. My two, three, four, five years in, being an attorney, I thought, and then I started having kids, and I, well, if this is what I'm doing instead of staying home with my kids, then... has to mean either I have to it has to mean something to me or it has to mean something in the world. And so I was in engineering and hated it and decided that I would go to New Zealand. And so I withdrew from school. I was working at OW Kids and I was and then I also started loading trucks for UPS in the morning so I could make more money. And then took the the train from Jacksonville when I had to stop in Houston because my mom also freaked out because she was living in Houston even then. Same with my mom for like a week. I was like, I love you, mom, but I'm still going. And so then I flew from Houston to LA and then LA to the Cook Islands in the South Pacific, uh, stayed in Rotonga, the Cook Islands, which is one of the best weeks of my life. And then from Cook Islands to New Zealand. And I was in New Zealand, same as you, for about a month. I, I rode on the Kiwi experience, which is a bus where you can just hop on and off and went from off North part of North Island all the way down like you to Christchurch in Queenstown. I didn't stay in Queenstown, but I think a day or two. And the hostel I stayed in was gross, but then went all the way back up and then took a train from Los Angeles all the way across the United States back to Jacksonville on Amtrak. And if you want to really see a slice of America. You should ride an Amtrak for three days. Uh, That was an interesting experience. Um, I absolutely loved everything about New Zealand. I mean, it's beautiful, it's safe. um, It's very different. I mean, I don't know if they have a desert, so it's different in the same way that the US is different when you travel all the way across. Unfortunately, not enough people in the US travel enough through the United States to see it and see how vast it is. But, I, but you know, the North Island where it's beachy and palmy and great to the South Island where there's, I did a glacier walk. Um,
0: Fox Glacier. I mean,
1: it was just, it, yeah, it was just amazing. I still have a scar on the back of my leg on my Achilles tendon where the, the ice boots that I was wearing, when I say it was a blister, like it, I could see my Achilles tendon. It hurt so bad after, but it was worth it. And it's a cool scar.
0: Did you do the underground tubing? You're like a river under, underground, and all you can see is like glowworms. Incredible.
1: No, but uh, I well maybe there's somewhere where we went on a cave walk where we saw glowing things, <laughs> and I'll have to pull my journal back up to remember where that was. But I feel like that was on the north part of the South Island. I can't remember, but I but I did the um I mean bungee jumping off some pipeline. I can't remember what it's called. I did like whitewater rafting but on a boogie board. I can't remember. I mean that was just it was amazing.
0: It's it it's truly one of the most beautiful places I've been, one of the cleanest, one of the friendliest and one of the fittest populations overall. Now obviously some of the the kind of Maori um bloodlines get get a little thicker. Um but that's why I was very surprised and disappointed to see right at the tail end of this to them kind of jump on the bandwagon of what we had here with some of the kind of philosophies on the mandates and things because if there's a, a healthy nation that gets preventative care and and you know the outdoor living I mean it's New Zealand so mm-hmm. that really really shocked I totally me agree. and it made me sad it I really was, did.
1: yeah I was really disappointed and sad about that when I heard it um yeah and, and I remember when I've I remember when I met I mean one of the things that was I would say transformational. I don't really know if that's the right word, but meeting um, a a very handsome fella in Auckland. That was Maori. Maori. I can't say it right. But then, and somehow, I obviously didn't know him for very long, but just in the short amount of time that we talked, realizing that the Maori Maori people, the indigenous people of New Zealand, were treated like the indigenous people of Americas or the indigenous people of Australia, the indigenous, like the, 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 it was just, it was just amazing to me. Like I grew up in the South of the U S where obviously where black people were treated awfully, poorly, unequal, so horrendously. But then to see that all the different ways that humanity has done that to people and, and not saying it like, I don't mean that to say like, Oh, well, then it's not as bad. What happened to black people. Then no, it's not what I mean at all. It was just amazing to me to see, Oh my God, but you're this beautiful human. Why would anybody ever treat you bad? Or, and just just expanding, and that's what I think travel does. And that's what I, when I talk about in my trainings, why it's so important for people to read, because you, to be, to expand your vision of what you, of what you see in the world is so important. And I think makes us all more compassionate and, and, and um, more empathetic to, to what's happening in the, you know, around you or in the grander scheme of things.
0: Well, it's interesting because I, I went to Fiji. That was my kind of mid-Pacific stopover. Beautiful, beautiful country. And it's an interesting dynamic there because there's a lot of Indian people that run the businesses. But the, the laws are written, I, th- I think it was by the British, where you could rent Fijian land, but you couldn't buy Fijian land. So Fijian land remained with the Fijians, with native Fijians, which I thought was great. Then you have, as you said, you know, the aboriginals in, in Australia. Um, you know, I, I witnessed some pretty crappy things with that dynamic, but it's almost like comical really because I could just see my forefathers going to New Zealand and expecting maybe a kind of, you know, Less than uh, challenging force facing them, and then the Maori show up with their tattoos and their facial expressions and their haka's, and the Brits going, oh, yeah. oh, "Hello," <laughs> you know. Like we're not going to fight these. just can these. imagine that That's with just... them
1: sticking their tongues out and their dances like that would be like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> yeah.
0: So, and surprise, surprise, they didn't, you know, overrun that island. They they ended up kind of working with them. So, you yeah. know, it, it's it's there's all these different countries and all these different kind of. You know, stories behind it. India obviously was, was pretty terrible. What the British did. And, you know, what Mahatma Gandhi did was incredible in retaliation to that or, or lack of retaliation. Um, but yeah, when you, as you said, when you travel and you get to see these native people, and again, obviously not all Australians bought into how Aboriginals, you know, were treated. And, and that's the other thing. You, you can't tar an entire nation with the same brush, but you do get your eyes open. Then you go back home, you listen to Fox or CNN, you're like, Jesus. This is absolute bullshit. You, you're lying yeah. through your fucking teeth. The more people that get out there, like you said, and read and travel, the more yes. they'll realize how much they're being lied to on the television.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I go through phases where I'm just going to not watch that crap anymore. And then uh, you get, and I get frustrated that, that there aren't any true sources to get information. I want to know what's happening in the world. I don't want you to tell me your crappy opinion about that. I just want you to tell me what's happening in the world. I you know the Crimea, I, I get um not Crimea, um Ukraine. Well, in Crimea, because they also took Russia, also took Crimea. Like, I just think there's like a like there's a whole story. What is the whole story of that? Because if you watch CNN or NBC or Fox or anywhere else, there's a there's a political slant to that. I don't want to know about the political slant. I just want you to explain to me how on earth did we get to the point where another country can take over another country and kill the people who live there? That is insane, and it's not right. And and so I, then I just don't watch it or right? like literally like during hurricane season and, and you live in Florida. So, you know, like, I just get to the point where I just pay just enough attention to the news to know if there's a hurricane coming that I need to prepare for. Um, because I want to know what's happening in the world. I want to to pray for people that need to be prayed for and, and talk to my kids about you know, the right and the wrong. But God, I turn the, the news on is just you can't get away from it, and it's frustrating. But I don't think that means you shouldn't do anything. I just think it means do the work for yourself, and like I say, like read, read books, read history, read things that, that educate you and might help you get a better understanding of it, and then just put the news in its place.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I think the BBC has always been pretty pretty good i've, I've always you know, liked them and I've, i think there was some slight leanings with the brexit and i think they jumped on the bandwagon with the covid a little bit more than they should have but overall i mean as i was younger especially before all this sensationalism it was a great place and we even had a kids version john craven's news round that would you know get us young english kids or british kids excuse me rallied up to, to do fundraisers and we'd learn about the famines in africa and you know real human stories and i think that's what's missing of this ukraine russia thing is how you telling me that the average Russian person was like, I'm just going to up sticks and go invade another country. No. Yeah. So what is it that they're being told? You know, because I, I, one of my guests, Jason, was telling me that uh, some of the Russians thought it was a training exercise, didn't realize they're actually participating in an actual invasion. You know what I mean? So there's these yeah. tyrants are sending their children to go do their bidding, you know, and if enough of them were educated and realized what was going on, I'm sure as we saw the protests in, in Russia they would be like, no, we're not going into Ukraine. Why would we do that? I'm, we're perfectly happy here. We've got more than enough space in Russia, for Christ's sake, one of the biggest land masses on the planet. So that's the human story. But what they're doing here in the U.S. is they're making us think all Russians are the devil. And I think that's so irresponsible.
1: I think so, too. I think so, too. My daughter was saying it the other day. and uh, She was saying something about Russians. And I said, well, Rosalie, like my grandfather hated Japanese. You know, and he was, so any, anybody who lived during that time. And and obviously we know how bad that was with the rush, the Japanese internment camps. But um, I said, if I would have, if my mom would have come home and said she was going to date the Japanese guy, my grandfather would have kicked him out and probably would have never spoken to her again. And like, my daughter was like, what, what? Like, yes. And so these things know Germany, like Same thing with Germany. I mean, I think it took years and years for people to not have an opinion of just Germans. Um, And I, I think the same thing. My daughter's saying, "Oh well, yeah, you know, I don't. Good thing we don't know any really Russian people." I'm like, "Well, that's not fair because there's, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, we don't know what they're being told, we don't know. Like, I don't think it's right. I certainly wish they'd stop. It's just heartbreaking. Um, and I still every day I just think, how can this be happening? How can there can this be happening that you just don't you don't get to just like I'm going to take this today." meaning a whole country. It's just insane. I want to know the whole story. That's what I keep thinking. I want somebody to tell the whole story. I want somebody to not be afraid of whatever political leaning crap. And I want somebody to just tell the whole story so that everybody can say, oh, because maybe it does involve other countries and that's what they don't want you to know about. I don't know. I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist, but I really believe there's just something about this that doesn't smell right. And they're not telling us the whole story. And I think what that means is probably the U.S. has a hand in that. Maybe it's from something that we said. I don't know. It could be something that we set into action, in motion years ago. I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm not implying that. And yet, there's just some part of it. We just, there's somebody's not, we're not being told the whole story. And yet, my heart breaks for that whole country.
0: Well, exactly. Because it's the men, women, and children that are paying the price on both sides. You know, and of course, there are some people in that invading army that actually know exactly what they're doing and they're horrible people. But I think amongst yeah. them are, you know, innocents that are being caught up in, in this whole thing and it's horrendous.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, I love these tangents, but taking you back yeah. on- onto the career path. So you graduated with a degree in horticulture. Have I got that right? I did. Yeah. Yep. Um, Environmental
1: horticulture.
0: Beautiful. So talk to me about you you had the cheerleading, you started running, you have this... Really expensive piece of paper in your hand. So, what was the journey like <laughs> into law enforcement for you?
1: Um, you know, like I heard, and like I've listened to other podcasts and talked. Like, I uh, um, I follow Zeke Arkham, and he was interviewing some guys one time, like NYPD that had come up before him, and they were talking about what their experience was like at NY going through the NYPD police academy. Um, mine was not a bad experience, and I. I feel like it was just a very smooth transition because I knew somebody that was working at the sheriff's office and he's like, Well, if you're thinking about law enforcement, you should go do some ride-alongs. Like, okay, that's a good idea. So I went and did two ride-alongs. And and then I went back and it didn't turn me away from it. Um, although it was eye-opening. I remember my first domestic call I ever, ever saw was on a ride-along, and the first time I ever saw the lady had is a black couple. And the lady had scratched the guy's face so deep that he has these hair, these white marks on his face. And at first I thought, why does he have all those white marks? Thinking it's like chalk or something. And then I realized, no, it's because she scratched him so deep that it took off the, the dark layer of his skin. And he got down to like the subcutaneous layer. And so, and then I realized that it was her fault, not his, which you know, you'd be like, that was eye-opening. You just think it's always the women that you beat up. No, it's not. And you know, anybody in law enforcement or first responder world knows you go to a bunch of them where it's the, it's both, but, um, or sometimes just the female. So went back and my captain that I referred to earlier that I, I still keep in touch with, he was in charge of human research, like the HR side for when I interviewed. And I don't even remember an interview, to be honest with you, um, I had I talked with him. I did the ride-alongs. I came back and talked to him, and then he was at the time really pushing to get more deputies in that had been to college because he wanted people that you know while while there are a lot of downsides to the way the system works within the university system, one of the things that I think that that going to college does do for you is exposes you to a lot of different subjects, and just like well, when I say in my wellness training program, the mental training, like you should keep reading, you should always keep trying to work and and exercise your brain and expose yourself to different ideas, concepts, theories, subjects. Um, I remember when I read the Malcolm X book, when I was traveling to New Zealand, I was just amazed by it. Um, you know, like my life was nothing like Malcolm X's and we have no, we have nothing in common other than that we're humans and our physiological selves work similar. But, um, It's things like that. And so he was trying to do that to add more people who had some education to, you know, improve, um, just make some improvements at the sheriff's office. And I got, I lucked out because I was one of those first candidates and he even paid me while I was in the police academy. Now it was not very much. Um, I got paid less in the police academy than I did when I started at the sheriff's office. And when I started at the sheriff's office, my salary was $27,500. and I thought I had made it. <laughs> um, so, and then the police academy—I just loved it. I loved the physical aspect of it. I loved the training of it. I had never fired a handgun before, so I was good. I was a really good student with that. Um, I just loved it. I Loved learning about the the legal side of it and like and understanding the the rigors within law enforcement has to work from the constitutional aspect of things. I ended up getting uh, the highest fitness award at the police academy, which was kind of surprising to me because we had some like former military people in there. Um, and so then we went straight into the sheriff's office. So the whole experience, like the transition of it, it just always felt smooth. It just always felt like, okay, now this, okay, now this, okay, now this, until I got onto the SWAT team. It was very smooth.
0: Well, just staying on, on the kind of entry in for a moment, as you said, you're 5'5", five, five, you know, one of the challenging elements of being smaller, whether it's fireplace, whatever, and I, I was smaller stature going into the fire service, um, is the strength. So obviously, you're not gaining that from running. So what did you add to your training that allowed you to, to be as strong as you were, not only to win the fitness award, but make entry to the SWAT team as well?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm sure I did some strength training before I worked at the Games of Health and Fitness Center. But when I went and worked at the Games of Health and Fitness Center, they really, at the time, everybody, every employee could only teach the one set to failure. Um, Arthur Smith, he's the guy that invented the Nautilus machines. He was really big into the one set to failure workouts, and I, my personality is just like, okay, you're going to tell me, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do that. I have no problem with that. And I just, and again, like when I went to the police academy, I had never fired a handgun, so I did it exactly what they told me to do it, which meant I had the right grip, the right stance, and so I did well in firearms. I didn't have any bad habits to break, is what my firearms instructor told me. And so similar when I went to the Gains of Health and Fitness is that they, they gave me this workout plan. I probably never really followed a strength training plan before and I did it and it was good. And and then I started, let's see, but also well, so I just did this the strength training there. And then somewhere around that time, I can't remember if I started this before or after I was at the sheriff's office. But then I at some point I got into sprint triathlons. So I've just always really liked exercise i mean once i started doing it i just love it just kept going i'm I'm not an ultra marathoner i'm not that a, if anything i'm more of a sprint runner than a i've done marathons and i don't like them but i'm more of a sprint, like sprint triathlon um not a full triathlon um and so it just kind of kept evolving but definitely working at Gainesville Health and fitness center and of course that's where i met the the, the guy who ended up being my boyfriend but his name's danny stevens um the most amazing manager I've ever worked for. In fact, I've told him that he ruined me for almost any other job ever because he was such a good manager and motivating people and teaching people to be their own leaders. And, and that's not what most supervisors are like. Um, certainly not at the sheriff's office. Um, and so the fitness side just, it just kind of kept evolving. I enjoyed the running. So, um, I wouldn't do, like I said, I'd do like five K's and then I started doing the strength training. And then I don't think I got a trainer for the first time and really started enjoying upping my level on the training. And then all that mattered ultimately, um, like leading up to SWAT. So the strength side is, I just don't think, I also think that if you don't have brute force, then you have to have like brain force. If that, that's a silly term I just made it up. But you just have to be smarter, you know. So yes, I would train all the time because I knew I needed to be able to, to to handle whatever came up. But I was also not stupid enough to think that I was going to be able to fight somebody the way that Brian Gaynor, two hundred and fifty former Marine, on the SWAT team with me. I'm mean, not. I was not stupid. So um, yes, you have to be strong. I mean, I did. You know, I made the SWAT team because I passed the trial. It's the same trial that the guys had, but. I just trained, and that was my life. And I didn't have kids then. I trained, and I worked, and I trained, and I worked. I probably wasn't didn't have enough other facets to my life.
0: you <laughs> talked about the narcotics division having some gray areas. So expand on that.
1: Well, and I said that I don't mean that as, as though we were breaking the laws. Because when I was on the narcotics unit, that um, that TV show with Michael Chiklis was out. Uh, the,
0: the Shield.
1: The Shield. God, yes. Anyway, they just broke laws all the time. I, we didn't. I know for sure that everybody I worked with did not, um, you know, chain of evidence, all that's very important, especially when you're confiscating narcotics. What I mean is that if you break a law, you go to jail. If you break another law, you go to jail. Well, when you get caught with narcotics and I want to find out who you bought that from, then I say, then you got to flip and you got to go buy. And instead of you getting jail time, which is the way the statute reads, then Maybe you'll get probation or something. And so it becomes instead of me, me, I went into it thinking, if you break a law, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts, you go to jail. Period. End of story. Done. Well, no, that's not. You got to get. You know, like you want to get drugs off the streets. So you got to figure out where they're coming from and who's sending them. and You want to going up the chain. And so that's where it becomes gray. Or you have a snitch that's working with you that you don't think that they're using drugs, and then you find find them on the street the next week, high and like cr- on crack and people who have been using crack for a long time have a very distinctive smell. Um, it's not a good one. Um, and you think, well, I should arrest you because you probably have some crack on you, but I'm not going to some, I just need you to go take me to whoever you've got. You know, who's given, where'd this vendor come from? Who's selling you your crack? And like, we had a lot of snitches, you know, I was calling that what's calling confidential informants. Um, but my snitches would, that's what they would get rid of their dealers, so they could stop using, and because you know drug addiction is a very difficult thing to deal with. Um, so that's what I mean by gray area: is you learn that it's not always; it's just not always, you know, A and B, X and Y. Sometimes it's Y back to A.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's the thing. So, so I always ask this question, and again, I will preface it with, but this is my observation opinion being a firefighter paramedic for 14 years and seeing behind the curtain and um, when you think of the war on drugs and you look at countries like portugal and switzerland that have had incredible success by taking addicts not smugglers not dope sellers but addicts and taking them out the criminal system and put them in the hands of the medical system i see the incredible success they have with the addiction element themselves and these rates go down incredibly and supply and demand element if you cut the head off the snake and no one's looking for illicit drugs anymore now that it, that impacts all the other elements of the legal system with you having that kind of glimpse into the narcotics unit and then obviously for years and years after that in law what is your perception of, of drug prohibition and you know do you have a, a, a kind of um a leaning towards decriminalization and putting addiction in a mental health space or are you you know still leaning towards the the legal side
1: Oh, it's a good question, and it's it's a very loaded and heavy one. Um, having seen suicide victims more than once, as I'm sure you have, um, and seeing those people leave family members behind, and seeing how messed up those family members are even before that person is you know, death by suicide, and I like to say death by suicide because. I do not believe it's a choice at that point. I think it's, if you're to that point, you're so mentally unwell, and it's an it's an illness. And I do think it's treatable. Having also lived and worked in Florida, where you will understand Baker Act, which is when you're involuntarily committed, and having seen that, but you only get a 72-hour commitment. And I'm from the legal perspective, is that you cannot involuntarily commit someone from a mental aspect. Okay, the way that it's always been is that. While you can put somebody in jail for six months, 12 months, prison for however long for when they violate the statute, and while they might get a little bit of drug help while they're in, they're also being surrounded with some The recidivism rate. As you know, the return to criminality when you get out is bad or it's high. The recidivism is like the percentages of somebody going out and doing again what they just did is really high. So I definitely 100% think there is Tremendous value in diverting addicts out of the criminal system and into a treatment system. I just also think that there's so much more work to be done on that, and the recovery programs that they get are not long enough. For example, like someone who's get, gets addicted to meth, the, the statistic is that it takes roughly 18 months, a year and a half before your brain starts to produce the normal level of chemicals that you, it was producing before you started taking meth. So you take meth or cocaine and it's similar. I mean, meth is a little bit worse, um, but that you get the happy chemicals and you get this amazing dump of happy chemicals and your body becomes addicted to that because it can no longer, it can't go, get back to its normal equilibrium state and it can, but it takes a very long, um, program to, to support you during that. Um, and, Unfortunately, I think people's, um, I don't want to say patience, their, their memories are short, their, like, well, you're, yo, know, I'm still paying for this program for all these people for 12 months, 13, 14, 18 months. Like, oh, that's too expensive. We can't pay for that. Oh, well, that's too much taxpayer dollars. We can't pay for that. And that's awful. And then, but it ha- the money has to come from somewhere. So. In fact, maybe Congress should pay for it. Where the heck is all this money coming from that they keep giving out to people just drives me crazy. That's another tangent. But, um, so I do not believe that shoveling an addict into the criminal system is the right way. I definitely still think there's the, you have to protect people mentally unwell, Persons can also very oftentimes be very dangerous people, very violent people. And so you want to prevent them from hurting others and it becomes very criminal. But then there's there's not, is there, is that choice? I mean, there has to be an intent from the legal side of things in order to commit a crime. There has to be intent. Um, You know, that's the difference between murder and manslaughter murder. is you intended to do that, you intended to kill that person manslaughter is you didn't really mean to, but your actions caused it anyway. So if you take away intent, then that's a lot that's very different it's just I think it's very very hard I I would definitely love to see much more like what we should call like a pre-trial intervention program where you just automatically get that and then you get your strikes and you're out and you just end up but but then that's hard is you get three strikes and you're out but you're striking out because you're mentally unwell and you're taking drugs and then it's such a it's a dirty loop so um it's really hard. I, I definitely have changed my opinion a lot over the years on the criminality aspect of drugs. Um, even when I was in, and that was a long time ago, and people's opinions and, and governments have changed their stance on something like even something as simple as marijuana. Um, and back in the day, I'd say, you know, I'd arrest people for weed, and they'd say, oh, you shouldn't be arresting me for that. I'm like, look, should or should not, my job is to enforce a law. I don't make them. Right now, the law says this is illegal, so I'm arresting you for it. And so, um, I, I do think that I that has changed. I, I mean, I, but I like I don't think meth should be legal. I don't think crack should be legal, only because having seen what like how awful it is to people that take it. So saying it's illegal and you can't do it, or or my husband believes like my husband like he's super libertarian. He's like, don't no laws. If somebody wants to do it, it's their decision. Um, I don't know, but. There has to be some kind of deterrent to taking those things right now that's criminalizing it. I don't know that that's the perfect answer, but certainly if that helps some people not do it, then that's great. I don't know. It's complicated, as you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, and I I apologize to people listening because I hit this topic all the time, but there's a reason because we see the catastrophic domino effect as first responders. But one misunderstanding is legalization doesn't mean you have it at Publix you know what i mean you just you're not arresting that person for a personal use of meth anymore and you're filtering them into well-funded programs because you take the war on drugs that you know funded you in a swat you know bearcat and me as a medic behind you you know which i did multiple times i even followed the, the the motorcade for biden when he was vice president coming through orlando ironic but anyway um (laughs) <laughs> i digress yeah um but uh, you know so you take that money that's already being used to pay for this and you move it over to proactive elements but i think you're right with that short short kind of memory i mean look at nine eleven. our poor fdny you know nypd they're dying from nine eleven cancers and they're having a fight even for benefits of these terminally ill men and women like you know really that was 20 years ago you've already forgotten
1: Oh, it's that part. that is That blows my mind. It, it's infuriating every time I hear it. It's it's shocking. And and considering, like I practiced in asbestos litigation for 13 years. So I know what being exposed to asbestos does to people because those have been my clients for years. And the the World Trade Center, by the way, halfway up, they were using asbestos. And then the laws changed and OSHA, I mean, OSHA told them they couldn't use it anymore. So then the top half of of, or one of the towers had a lot of asbestos, the other was didn't or, or something like that. Um, but so when those towers came down, those big white plumes, everybody around, I mean, and once you can see the dust, it's too late because the asbestos fiber is so small. Um, I, I could also go off a tangent on masks, but I won't do that right now. Um, because masks don't protect you from an asbestos fiber and asbestos fiber is larger than the COVID virus. So that's different. That's allegedly, a topic for another day. Yeah, right. <laughs> allegedly, yeah. Although I depose lots of epidemiologists who have talked about the fact that a mask does not protect you from asbestos fibers. But again, I digress.
0: Yeah, and this is why the the core of my whole discussion on that the last two years is just make people as as healthy as possible. And oh, I totally that, agree. And that has I, I know
1: some people do don't, don't like Joe Rogan. I love Joe Rogan. I love that he just says what he 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 he. he I like Joe Rogan because he will look at all sides of something. Joe Rogan is actually, he would have voted for Bernie Sanders if he would have run, you know, been on the ticket for That president. was a great so conversation
0: when he had him on his show.
1: Yeah. And so he was definitely not a conservative. He's never, he'll take, he said it many times, he's never once in his life voted for a Republican. And so when people went crazy against him, I, that just blew my mind. But I was listening to, I was trying to finish an um, interview he had with Dave Chappelle the other day. And during that interview, he mentioned how he has interviewed a psychiatrist. um, I can't remember his name. And anyway, it's been on his show somewhere in the last however many years he's done this, where this guy actually studies drugs, takes all of them. He's taken heroin, he's taken meth, he's taken coke, and he'll take them, but he doesn't abuse them. And so when you say, if people wants to say like, Oh, you just have recreational use of meth. Like, okay. Is there a prescription for them? I mean, again, you get, here's your three crack rocks. I don't know if that will ever be a thing, but, and that's what this guy is saying is all of these drugs are okay. If you're not, if you're not taking it too far and is criminalizing it, just make it, making it to where people always want to go on a binger. I don't know. Um, I've never taken a drug in my life. Well, I drink alcohol. That's a drug. Um, I've never smoked. I guess that's that's why I tried to smoke a cigarette one time in high school, and it was so disgusting. I never did it again. But it's interesting that I've been on the narcotics unit because I I've never even smoked marijuana. So first time I went out to buy crack in my pink T-shirt that said "Life is good," and I was like, "Excuse me, sir, could you please sell me a crack rock?" <laughs> um, but I do think there's something to be said. Well. First of all, like uh, decriminalizing marijuana in the places where they've done that, you know, the world has not gone crazy, and the government can tax it just like they do cigarettes. I mean, c- nicotine's a drug that's very addictive; that kills people. So
0: millions, tax it. millions. And I don't millions. know.
1: I think there's something. I would not be upset if I. I don't think you should start giving it out for free or anything. I'm not saying that, but. I don't think the government should be mailing out crack pipes to people or anything, but, you know, don't facilitate the benders. Don't make it easier.
0: No, and I don't think that's the thing. I don't think they're trying to do that. I think, you know, what we, it would be like saying, oh, well, don't don't have, you know, Oxycontin on, in, in publics on the non-prescription shelves. You know, yes, it, 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 you wouldn't be prescribing meth or anything, but there are certain people, a very small amount of people that, cannot kick addiction and that's the ones that everyone focuses on like see this program doesn't work where the other 90 percent have got better so they go to these safe you know um what they call safe injection sites or whatever yeah
1: i mean that's what methadone is
0: exactly so but the goal is you you address the mental health side i agree completely johan Hari was on here he was on joe's show as well but he talks about rat park and very very briefly overview they, they had these rats in, in a cage and they had, um, water with cocaine, I think it was, and water without. And these, these rats kept going to the cocaine one. Oh, okay. Cocaine's addictive. Well, then someone had the bright idea of creating an awesome cage for these rats that was full of super fun stuff that they could do in that cage. The rats only had the water. They didn't take the cocaine anymore. So it was a, it wow. was a happiness thing. It wasn't an addiction thing. When you look at the psychology, I mean, the pharmacology, I mean, a lot of these, don't actually have the hook that we're told they do, but we will fill the void. And you talk about cigarettes, you talk about alcohol, all these legal things that we stand upon and judge all these crackheads when most of you know our peers, some drink socially, a lot completely abuse it to, to kind of dull the suffering that they're going through at home. So we have this complete hypocrisy where our, you know, our professions are riddled with alcoholism. And, you know, I know many firefighters I've lost from, from opiate overdose as well, Mm -hmm, but then mm -hmm, we'll have a completely different set of ethics for other people rather than just realizing if we fix mental health, we will fix alcoholism, we'll fix probably even tobacco, you know, abuse, all these things. But if we just can treat it as, well, this is okay and this isn't, we're going to have this kind of hypocritical system that we have now that has a hundred years of failure.
1: And do you i feel like the fact that the the change in stance on marijuana that's happened even just the last 20 years and i think more states have, need to go i mean I live in texas it's not it's not legal in texas i, I think it should be who gives a duty shit about marijuana anymore and to me like one of the reasons i won't smoke marijuana is the same reason i won't smoke A cigarette is because when you burn something, you're inhaling a carcinogen and I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I work too hard to be healthy. I work too hard to be, be able to have fun with my kids in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, my grandkids. So at this point, my I have a lot of friends say, oh come on, Bridget, just do it, just do it, just do it. I'm like, no, for the and it's for the same reason I won't smoke a cigarette. I'm not gonna inhale a carcinogen that I've burned and then stick it into my lungs. I mean, I studied again, I, I have clients who over the years that kept dying because of a carcinogen that got into their lungs. I know how that I'm not no, no, thank you. So like you said, it's educating people on how to be healthy, spending a lot more time on like this whole COVID thing, I think it just spent way more focus on telling everybody how on, on how to decrease the the comorbidities. Um, are we always I mean, do, that's what Joe Rogan, I said. We keep I keep saying him, or we, we he's come up several times now. But I mean, that's what he said. He always says it is that why isn't the government put more time and money into telling people how to be healthy? But you know. Uh, but do you think that given the like the difference in marijuana over the last 20 years, does that make you hopeful that then there would be similar ways to decriminalize things for other drugs in the next 50, you know, third, I don't think it would happen in 20 years. Because I think hopefully within the next 20 years, all states have decriminalized marijuana. But then maybe after that, that within 30 years after that, 50 years from now, could we be in a place where they're changing this, like you're saying, the, the dual standard of, Uh, Well, drugs, basically.
0: I think where ironic is that the same sad reason why we have amazing adaptive athlete groups in the world now and prostheses is from the tragedy of our men and women coming home missing limbs. Um, I think the same kind of push has helped on the psychedelic world. And I think that's going to be a big push to decriminalization, decriminalization, because, and I've talked about this many, many times, it was a lot, especially the Navy SEALs. They, our men and women that fight for this country, that lose limbs for this country, that bring home TBIs and mental trauma for this country, have to go to another country to get these incredibly effective treatments, whether it's MDMA-led psychotherapy, whether it's Ibogaine, whether it's psilocybin, because our fucked up drug policy won't even use those to treat our own veterans. So I think that yeah. that and the, the MAPS organization, they're going to be a real driving force. And then you take the success of Switzerland, the success of, of Portugal. These countries now for 20 years have been like, well, we've been doing this the whole time. You you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to drop your freaking ego Drop this chest beating. We're the best in the world bullshit and go, actually, you're doing that much better than us. We have wars on our streets. We have gangs of teenagers murdering each other every night. We have a border where our tourists are getting murdered as soon as they cross over. Maybe our system isn't very good. Portugal, Switzerland, can we borrow what you're doing? You know, so I think all those elements, cause just marijuana isn't enough. Like you have to, we have to look at it as a mental health element. That means decriminalizing i like the decriminalization decriminalize so don't lock up addicts but funnel them into mental health and job creation and addiction and put our money there and then watch the domino effect but i think it it's that you know plant a tree under which you'll never enjoy the shade you know that kind of philosophy we have to stop thinking mcdonald's drive-through mentality and understand that we're doing this for our next generation
1: Mm -hmm. i think uh i think you're totally right. On the psychedelics, by the way, um, that's just becoming much more of a conversation. And some studies, some you know, big name people talking about it, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about it all the time. Um, you know, Joe Rogan talks about it, he has people on to talk about it. So I think it's names like that that matter, that, that thankfully will swing that pendulum. And I don't like to say pendulum because pendulum always swings back the other way but move the needle rather to move the needle more towards acceptance and change. Um, to me, the opinion on things like public opinion on, on law enforcement, you know, like it goes back and forth. It, it's been really bad and it will come back. Hopefully it doesn't take a freaking tragedy to bring it back. But you see like that cop in New York that died and they had that unbelievable funeral, you know, I, that brings some public opinion the right, the other way. And then, You know, it's it's always going to go back the other way, unfortunately, and not not. I am not saying that because, you know, something bad. Law enforcement's going to do something bad again. I I I choose to be positive, Polly, not Debbie Downer. Um, and I think there's lots of things along this mental health conversations. I think there's there's always something you can do to be better. Like 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 you're saying about the United States that we there's always something we could be doing better. Get over yourself. Take ego out of it, and just look at what. Should be like, I don't like the word should either. Look at what the possibilities are, and I think that that comes all the, ways down, all the way down to like the individual level. Is there's always possibility, um, which is always what's so sad about somebody who you know, death by suicide is that they obviously feel like there is no possibility, and that is just heartbreaking. Um, you know, the two deputies in St. Lucie County that committed suicide within a month of each other leaving their baby. I mean, how bad is it? when you when you choose to leave your baby behind i just i just that one is really really i can't stop thinking about that one not i mean not that any of them are any less important um but that one is really shocking
0: well i've i've talked about that on here you know a few times for for the simple fact that as i've done almost 600 episodes now there have been some glaring common denominators in a lot of these conversations it's 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 incredibly powerful and one thing that I was completely ignorant to when I started this, you know, five plus years ago was, you know, you, you hear people say, oh, suicide is cowardly and all that stuff. Well, as you hear these stories of people that had the pistol in their mouth, that you know, some of them even pulled the trigger and the firing pin didn't go off. Some of them jumped off the bridge or did pull the trigger and they survived. It's just a, an amazing spectrum of these incredibly courageous men and women telling their stories, a resounding common denominator is a feeling of being a burden one is obviously wanting the pain to end the other one is being a burden so that is something we always talk about oh think about your kids how could they do that what about the baby well imagine if your brain was so miswired by that point that your brain would convinced you that the baby was better off without you your husband your wife is better and that's what happens and you add in and i'm going to get to this next childhood trauma you've got the things that you and i see on the job You've got um organizational stress, that feeling of betrayal from your own agency, which I know is a personal thing for you. These are compounding elements and add divorce and that, you know, financial stresses and it can create this perfect storm. And the big, big one that no one fucking talks about is sleep deprivation. We work our men and women in uniform into the ground and then we're amazing at burying them. We'll do these beautiful funerals with bagpipes and flags, but no one will step up and say, we need more people. These people are working too hard. The fact that you can take a cop or a firefighter who's already done 12- or 24-hour shifts and tell them, no, you can't go home, you have to stay for another one, is completely unacceptable.
1: I was just saying this morning, you know, that or uh, may have forgotten that the New Orleans Police Department has been under a consent decree for a long time, um, rightly so. Um, I mean, I am law enforcement, so I'm always pro-law enforcement, but the New Orleans Police Department needed some, needed to correct some things. Uh, and I'll say that as being an outsider. But um, I saw today that they granted a, to amend the consent decree to increase the number of overtime hours that officers were allowed to work to up to 32 a week. What? Like, I don't know that you need to change that. But what you should be saying as a department is, hell no, my officers are going to and sleep. No that's why you shouldn't work that many overtime hours. Are you because they're severely understaffed? Now, my husband's from New Orleans and my father-in-law still spends most of his time there. And I hear all the time from him about how unsafe that city is. It was already unsafe. And this also has a lot to do with the, the, the drug issue, the criminality, the, the gangs, all that. So that's very much plays into everything we've already talked about. And it is still the fact of it is that right now today it's not safe. There are too there's too much crime happening. They're severely understaffed. And as many departments are across the country right now, and the that and then you're gonna increase the amount of hours they're allowed to work. And I'm not saying it's mandatory over time because it included off duty jobs. But what you really should be doing is sitting down with your officers saying is why are you needing to work this much? Are you doing it because you need more officers, that's the conversation you need to be having. Not let the officers work so much they're never sleeping. The, the agencies who allow, the agencies who rotate their officers through shifts. So it's bad enough if you work nights and having to mess up your circadian rhythms. But if you work one month days, one month mids, one month nights, and then you rotate back through, then you never, your body can never adjust and you do long term damage. Well, okay, not long term. It can be undone and you can you can fix yourself with that. But like you said, not if it just then adds this bigger mental health problem that somebody might have. That being sleep deprived is sleep deprivation is 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 real. One of the guys that was in my my program in the fall was saying that one of, like his department that basically pays lip service to wellness. They do all these wellness things that they have wellness and yet they're not doing anything to make sure their officers are sleeping enough. So basically it's like, thanks for the, the wellness program you gave us, but because you also just try and make sure that I could sleep for eight hours in a row instead of calling me in or got to go to court time or whatever, whatever reasons your sleep gets messed up. Um, yeah. It's the sleep part can really, I can jump on that soapbox with you anytime, because but that also goes back to decreasing comorbidities, comorbidities. If you're not sleeping enough, nothing in your body works right. Nothing. It doesn't matter if you eat right, work out right. That's what I, one of the things I say is that physical training, there's three fundamentals to physical fitness: stimulation, working out, nutrition, eating well and rest. But if you take out rest, it doesn't matter if you work out or eat right. Your body cannot process the exercise and the nutrition in a way to benefit you. It's so so important.
0: Well, I mean, again, I've got to speak to, you know, so many amazing people, people from the sleep medicine world. But you talk to the the people who deal with back injuries, um, you know, I'm blanking his name now. They call him the back mechanic. Oh, how embarrassing. I forgot his name. Anyway, um, an amazing Canadian authority in in um, Stuart McGill. There we go. And then you've got Chris Hinshaw, you know, who trains some of the most elite CrossFit athletes. And you've got these sleep medicine people. And again, common denominator over and over again. You want to destroy any gains you're making with your physical fitness and with your nutrition, then don't sleep. You want to destroy your mental health, then don't sleep. So as you know, in our community... When we do get some kind of, you know, lip service on on mental health, oh, it's what you see. When you do have some lip service on cancer, oh it's the carcinogens, firefighters, just clean your gear. No one ever talks about why are we working our men and women almost in the fire service almost twice as much every week than a civilian works, because it's fifty-six hour work week before you're even told you can't go home, which is all the time. So the person bagging my groceries, God forbid, I, you know, they work 41 hours, but the guy waking up at 3 in the morning, pulling a kid out of a fire and then working a full arrest on them, that's okay to have them to work 72-hour work weeks. It's, it's absolute insanity.
1: That's one of the things that amazes me about firefighters. People think, and I hear this, and I'm sure you've heard it, people say, well, all they do is sleep. Like, really? Yes, they have a 24-hour shift, and maybe sometimes they get to sleep. But how about you try, trying to sleep and wake up two hours and then come back and try and sleep and wake up in two hours. Or maybe you have a super busy night. Maybe every once in a while you get to sleep for four, five, six hours in a row, but you don't know the statistics of calls that firefighters go on. And just because they sleep at the firehouse because they have a 24-hour shift does not mean they're sleeping. And like in Houston, for example, um, the citizens voted for the firefighters to get equal pay for police. And- I voted for that and our mayor refuses to institute it and is doing and continually suing the firefighters union over it, which blows. And then they say, well, it's not the same there. They get rest. Like really show me the stats. Show me the data. I mean, I, I, I did uh yoga for first responders training in the fall. Um, Eric Brennerman is a retired firefighter, Olivia Mead. That's his wife. You know, you've had them on yes right? well, um, you know olivia's
0: things. been yes. on
1: yeah eric hasn't but olivia has yeah. yes um so olivia didn't make it to the train. so eric was there and that's one of the things eric was talking about is like at fire the people just have this there's this thing that people think firefighters get to sleep and that is i didn't think that anyway because i think when you're on shift or where like where i worked i got to go at like the best bathroom i could go to where the firehouses i mean and they were always so nice and I mean, I was just hoping they were, you know, quote unquote home because, and there were plenty of times they weren't where I had to go to the, I mean, some whatever nasty bathroom because I couldn't get in because they were out. So even in the rural areas, firefighters still have a lot to do. And I just don't think people realize that. And it's unfortunate, but it's just to say that overall as first responders, the job does so many things to you, including sleep deprivation.
0: Absolutely. Well, touching on the organizational stress, um, you mentioned about making the SWAT team. You were in the SWAT Roundup, you know, mm-hmm. team twice. Mm-hmm. But I know your experience wasn't all good. And as I heard you mention another podcast, you know, there are some great chiefs out there. I had Roger Shy, a good great example. He does a department in Idaho, does incredible things, certainly admired by a lot of people. But I have my personally in my last department of work some absolute shitheads as well. So talk to me about your experience and and then kind of lead me into the transition out. And what was the impact of that transition when you get to that point as well? Because that's, you know, that's always a hard one when people go from almost the kind of the the identity of being a police officer or a firefighter to the next
1: step. Um yeah, obviously I've talked about I talked to, I have talked about it a lot. And one of the things when I was on um Gosh, now I'm not even gonna say it out loud because I feel bad. My mind's gone blank. I should look it up, but um, a podcast recently, and I was talking about how I realized that it took me 15 years to to realize that I was telling myself stories and holding on to something about that experience before I could finally let it go. 15 years. When I went into the sheriff's office and then, you know, I wanted to be, I, I plan on having a career, a life, and law enforcement. And I put everything I was into that. in patrol, and then narcotics. Once I switched, switched from patrol to narcotics, I was about a year in. And then I spent all the rest, almost, almost all the rest of the time in the narcotics unit. I got onto the SWAT team about two or three months after I got on narcotics. And, and, there, um, and, of course, I put everything of me into that. I mean, being the only female on SWAT and just knowing that was a thing, I mean, I was always the elephant in the room and knowing I needed to be strong enough, tough enough, you know, just to do the job. I I wanted nothing other than to be considered a valuable operator. And I almost, but for the fact they let me compete in SWAT Roundup because I was physically capable of doing it. And obviously it was gonna give them an advantage to potentially win by being on the team. So they let me do that, but they never really appreciated me, at, never really, never gave me the opportunity to to be a tactical operator. And I wanted nothing more than that. Um, you know, one year in it's fine, I'm still the rookie, you know, the FNG, you know, the fucking new guy girl. Um, Two years in, all right, I'm still the FNG. And then I was like, wait, there's actually newer FNGs than me, and they're getting to do all this stuff. And some of them are the same size as me. And again, I mean, it comes back to almost being I can't be I have to be smarter by being female. Even a guy that's the exact same size as me can still be it is stronger than me because you know it comes down to chemicals in our bodies, testosterone. Uh, I still think I was definitely stronger than most women, um, but not stronger than men. So, uh, but, but then, so year two, like, okay, now there's another FNG after me. Okay. Now there's another FNG after me and another FNG. Oh, wait, they're getting to do entry team. I'm still on, I'm still getting to drive the bread band. I call it the bread band where we always brought our gear with us. You know, I was always on the supply truck and one time they put me on an entry and I trained just as much as they did. And knew what I was doing. And you clear a room. I mean, you when you're on SWAT, you do that so many times and did my job and never got to do it again. And found out years later that you always sort of have like team captains, and the, whoever's the captain of that day is the one that will put together the entry team. And the person who put together that entry team just was also a on the narcotics unit with me. And I found out, I don't know, a couple of years later that when he did that, he was berated. doing it. And he never put me on again. Nobody else ever even did it once. And especially after doing SWAT Roundup the second time and the whole time, just every one of my mistakes were highlighted, written down, papering my file, getting in trouble. And at first it was like, okay, you're right. I made a mistake, but I'll do better. And then, okay, you're right. I made a mistake. Okay, you're right. And then it just, because that was become so much. And And then it became, I would say, wait a second. Like he's making a mistake. He didn't get five hundred mountain climbers. He's making a mistake. He didn't get called out in front of everybody. I mean, I've told the story before where my sergeant, um, we were in the hood practicing school act school shooter events. Like not long after Columbine, that's what everybody was doing. Because if you remember that from Columbine, there were kids that bled out and died in that school that could have been saved, but they we waiting to go in. I can't, you know, for whatever reason. So then I was like, okay, we'll never do that again. We train everybody to be able to handle after shooter thing, even if it's SWAT or not, like go in and get the shooter so we can save people. And so we would train that all the time. So it was in the summertime. So school was out, but it was a high school that was in the hood. And when I come out, the, we take a break and we'll come out and I see my sergeants um, and he's one of the team captains on SWAT. So he has even more gear than me in his car. So he has, probably a Benelli shotgun and a fully automatic AR, you know, rifle and gear and ammunition and grenades, or maybe I don't know if we had grenades, but flashbang, I mean, all the shit. And his car was wide open. His trunk was open. His windows were down. And I walked out and literally my mouth fell open. I, I just was, I just was looking around like, this can't be, this can't be. If I did this, I'd have my, my lieutenant would be up my ass screaming out my face. Like I, it, I just couldn't believe it. And then that was it where I finally, I've told this story before I went to my lieutenant. And I said, I'm d- I'm not asking for better treatment. I'm just asking for equal treatment. And he says, what do you mean? And I was like, you would have, I mean, I don't want to, like I know people have heard this before, but I, you know, that part, I still remember how hurtful that was. And that was it. At that point, like, I remember one time I got in trouble for not having a car ready for a deal the next day where you like set it up with all the bugs or whatever. And I didn't because I got really sick and I had to go to the doctor before work. And I was really sick when I went home that night. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, feel really, I'll do it when I get there in the morning. And then I had to go to the doctor and I get there and I went to work anyway. And they wrote me up for not having the car ready. And also punishment was that I had to take this gigantic RV when I got off shift that night to go wash it. Well, I'd never driven an RV before. So, as I'm pulling out of our compound, I nicked the taillight and broke the taillight. So, I go to work the next day and they wrote me up, put a crash report in my file. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. So, and then my captain saw it because, of course, all the you know, liabilities are in driving. So, they like to keep their crashes down and blah, blah, blah. So, my captain sees this and he's like, what, why did Bridget crash an RV? And that's where I tell that story a lot, where that was like, that was the second to last thing that happened. Or um, my, even my captain was like, look, I do you want to talk about this? I can tell that like, there's a lot going on. And I was like, nope, I don't want to talk about it. Because I, again, I wanted nothing other than to be respected as an operator. And if I just keep sucking it up and keep sucking it up and keep sucking it up, it could get better. It will get better. It will, like, as I'm a big believer of like, the sun will come up tomorrow it will be better tomorrow. The sun always comes up. I will show them tomorrow. I'm pissed off and in a shitty mood and it's doomsday right now But I'm going to go to bed. It's going to be fine. That's again, why sleep is so important so that you can sleep away those shitty moods when you're tired. I woke up, I'm I'm doing this tomorrow. I'll do this tomorrow. And then about two weeks after that, I found out that my Lieutenant had told everybody on the team that I was trying to rat out one of my teammates and they were calling me a rat behind my back. As we were driving the SWAT vans to execute a search warrant that I had conducted on my own, where I bought cocaine from a guy with a rifle sitting right next to him. So, you know, putting my life on the line to buy drugs and execute the search warrant that was mine that I got approved by a judge. And on the way, while I'm driving the equipment van, you know, of course, because they won't let me be on the entry team, they're all calling me a rat and a snitch behind my back. And I was, crushed and realized that there was nothing I was ever going to do to change their minds. And maybe the more experienced person that I am now could look, you know, if I was in that, I would maybe think, you know what, I'm just gonna let this blow over and I'll stick it out. But the other part of me is like, no, screw you. Like I had competed with you guys on SWAT competition twice. You know, I can shoot, you know, I can, you know, I can do all these things. And yet it doesn't matter. And so I just decided enough was enough. Like I'm not going to spend the rest of my life, even at the federal level, trying to prove you I can do a job that I'm already good at. And and it was very hard. There were years when I didn't, for years, didn't tell people I was like, I might have told you I was a deputy sheriff, but I wouldn't have told you that I was narcotics and I wouldn't have told you that I was SWAT. I didn't want to talk about it it was really hard to go from that's my life's plan to now it's not. Now what do I do with myself? I say all the time that law enforcement officers need to be very careful in tying their identity and their ego into being a cop, which is that you carry a gun and you have the ability to take away people's constitutional rights. Um, And even if you leave it because you choose it, you're still taking away a huge part of your identity. And, I immediately went to law school, but again, like, I didn't tell people I did that. I didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted to be this other person. Like, if I can't be that, I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to be somebody completely different. And it took me 15 years to realize I'm still the same person. All that stuff matters. And I can use it, which is what I'm doing now, because I've always wanted to be able to help cops. As mad as I was at what my my situation was like, I still want cops to be happy. I want cops to feel joy and happiness on a daily basis. And it took me, but it still took me 15 years to really embrace everything that that job was, the things that I'm proud of about. And I was always proud of the fact that I did it, but it was hard, really hard. And I think any human, no matter what you do, if you work really hard for something and you feel like that doesn't matter, it's really hurtful and you can be a badass SWAT team person and you should also have the courage to say that you go through something that was hard and I well I've said I've always said I mean I don't think I've ever really said as clearly as I'll say now but I also think doing the work to have the conversations and and, and identifying something you've gone through that maybe that like I say I created stories around that I was building that into a thing and I needed to let that go and that That's the hard work. That's hard, hard work. But if you can do it, and, and everyone should, then you become a happier person. And it's not about doing better at your job. It's not about, but if I can be happier by letting something go, I'm a better wife, a better mom, a better attorney, a better Christian, whatever you are, you're you're you're, all, you're a bunch of things, but sometimes it takes really hard work to let things go so that you can be the best version of yourself. And that's, you know, it's a work in progress.
0: Well, I think what really resonated with me about your story was I was in a similar place the last department I was at and, you know, bent bent over backwards to try and make... You know, I would, do, I would do training. I brought in one of my my guests, Joseph Ibrahim, who's a trauma doc. He came in and did the whole trauma class for my station. and Did foundation training. I, I taught the whole department. Kind of helped the the PT for the brand new class right before I left. We the first time they ever had PT in a new hire class before they just rode rides wow. at the, the theme park, and it was absolutely pathetic. Yeah. But I had Jocko Willink on the show, and I asked, I kind of posed. The situation i was in and he's like you know you're telling me that you know you can't go up the chain of command and fix them like jocko sometimes the chain of command in a small department only has like four or five rungs and or less yeah, yeah and and those rungs are all chosen by the other rungs so yeah you can have a department where it doesn't matter how high you go up because you hear that like oh you want to change it promote i disagree mm-hmm. not always mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what you did and what i ended up doing well, sometimes you just got to go, you know what? There is no fix in this. Me in this dynamic is not the right fix. And so whether you go find a different department, because I freaking loved the departments I was in before that. So I had that standard. I knew what it should be mm. like. Yeah. Or like you did, like I did, you transition out. And I think what's very admirable about you is that you weren't bitter same way as i transition out i'm like all right i'm going to fix it from the outside i'm going to crush this fucking department (laughs) with (laughs) everyone else's knowledge to the point where hopefully it will permeate and someone will go wait a second they're not prepared they're not you know you know there's no fitness standards some can't put their mask on you know what i mean and these are these are serious things that people are getting paid to potentially save lives that aren't ready and it's because the fault of the top it's absolutely the fault of the top so you know it really resonated with me because you didn't you weren't bitter you didn't become anti-cop or anything you you know went the legal route and then or root i, I said it in an american way then um <laughs> and then uh you know ultimately gave back to the community which is what made me start this podcast is i was tired of seeing tired of burying my friends and and some of these these people that call themselves leaders in the last two years has been a perfect example of how you know shitty so many leaders are around the world the 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 death and and ill health they're causing to the men and women in uniform and the men and women that we serve it's it's unacceptable to me so you know that's what what i really loved about yours you took that that pain and that um you know betrayal basically and you turned Mm -hmm. it into something Mm -hmm. positive
1: well thank you yeah i i'm not gonna lie i would love for somebody to say i'm sorry and I would love for if somebody hears some of this to say, oh, shit, I didn't realize it's what I was doing, like, and and take some ownership in it. And I know that's just not always, I mean, I don't expect a phone call. Um, and I, I still think like that, that if my supervisors had had the supervisor I had at ODB Kids before I became, went to the sheriff's office, they would have had nobody teaches them them how to lead. And that's not their fault. And so it's because I worked at ODB Kids. I mean, one one thing always leads to another. It's because I worked at ODB Kids where I got, I mean, I was a supervisor at a health club where every week we would meet and learn a chapter of seven habits of highly effective people. I mean, that's the foundation I had going through it. And I think also that's part of why when I was in it, experiencing leadership like that pissed me off so much and probably led me to have such a short, um, uh, what is the right word? I just wasn't going to put up with it for very long because I know that leadership can be done better. I know that I can lead people better and that I could go do something else and then come back and teach the next generation to do that better. Like I say, you and I had a conversation before. Like ultimately, my goal is that I want to teach. I want to be able to work with law enforcement executives to do the hard work. But it's hard work. Like you read any of these books: Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, James Clear on Atomic Habits. Um, I mean, a- any book that teaches you how to do like the the, the good stuff is not easy. It's not easy to lead people in the right way. It's freaking hard but it matters. And that, that's to me where it comes back to like, what my story is about, um, about like why, what chip, the chip on my shoulder I might've had that led me to to being in law enforcement or whatever is that it's doing, it, it matters when you do the right thing, even if doing the right thing is hard. Like, the girl that might've been mean to me in seventh grade versus the girl who wasn't mean to me. Like the girl who wasn't mean, it was harder to do that than the girl who was just being mean like everybody else. Or um, when I left the SWAT team and one of the guys that I was on the team with, also one that competed on SWAT Roundup with me. So like we trained even more together than I did with all the rest of the guys. And he came up to me one about, I don't know, a month or so after, and he said, Hey, I just want to tell you that I feel like you got a raw deal. Like it's not fair. And I got so mad in that moment because I know that I knew it meant that he was in the midst of that happening and never said anything, never stood up and said, guys, this isn't right. Like, what is she really? What is she really doing wrong? Or it's like, whatever, like leave her alone, let her, whatever. Um, but I also know that's hard to do. And so, I mean, to be extreme about it, like Mahatma Gandhi, like he what he did was hard in many ways, but because he did something no one else was doing. And so there's courage in that. There's bravery in that. There's, and so that's what I just want to ultimately. I can have a positive impact. And like I said, every time I've changed these jobs, like if I'm, I want what I do to matter. And and I think everybody always has ego tied in anything they're doing. Even if you're donating money to help improve somebody's lives, you, you still have some of your own ego and tied into why you're doing that because it makes you feel better about yourself. Um, and uh, but I truly believe that this is where I need that everything I've done in life has led me here. The leadership training I got at the Gainesville Health and Fitness Center o 2 Kids and then experiencing the shittiness of the sheriff's office in, in the many ways, both internally and externally, like seeing the brain matter of a two-year-old, which I've mentioned a lot, but I'll never unsee that. That was one of the worst scenes I've ever been to. And the mom realizing like, oh, it's just, and I'm, you know, it's awful. I can remember every single detail of that call. Um, you know, and then to also experience the stuff internally, interagency, like, And then becoming an attorney and just almost giving myself time to process that while earning a living. And now coming back is I can give back. And again, I want to make cops feel happier. And you can become happier, but it's going to take some work. Nothing in life is free.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to get to protective wellness. Just one kind of hit point to hit before. When I first not even moved to the U.S. I think I was a tourist and I remember going, you know, cause I worked in summer camps every year. So back in 94 for six years. Um, and, uh, I remember being in a motel and it was back when the yellow pages were still a thing yeah. and, and looking at the oh, side, you're dating
1: yourself. I, oh,
0: my face <laughs> dates myself. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, from the side I of the a, yellow page,
1: actual Rolodex. I mean, I, when I started to have a pager, anybody remember those? I mean, so go ahead.
0: Um, yeah I never I skipped the page or I had nothing and then ultimately one the, of the big Nokia not the giant bricks mm-hmm. but you know the the yeah. first ones that were Close for normal enough. people yeah. yeah not yuppies yeah. Um, but yeah so you're looking at the side of the yellow pages from the not the spine but the other side and there was this thick line that was colored differently and I remember oh that must be doctors you know or, or something and it wasn't it was lawyers and wow. Back then in, you know, the 90s, England, I think it's sadly, I think they're shifting it a little bit more now, but there were no kind of like frivolous lawsuits in the UK. So I was just blown away by these, you know, probably hundreds of pages of lawyers in this local area specifically. And then you move here and you start to see, especially in our professions, that any man and his dog can say, I don't like the fact that you've got freckles, I'm going to sue you. And that's a thing yeah so and then you know we we respond i mean i remember one of my first calls in hialeah was a lady who dumped out some laundry detergent and then lay down next to it and luckily they had it on security camera and they showed us and she pretended that she had fallen and you know another one was a fender not even fender bender fender kisser and the guy was backing out and he was a lawyer funny enough and someone just pulled into this parking lot it was probably a one and three quarter mile an hour collision and uh it was in a rainstorm, and I remember the Hialeah medics had him out on the stretcher, taped down to the backboard in the storm, and they just did all the assessments and just let him get drenched before they put him in. But this abuse of the legal system nauseates me. When you're talking about asbestos exposure, as one of my my uh, fellow CrossFit coaches, Steve Wingo, and you know, he was he always kind of pulls the reins on me with the legal system. Like there are you know these these corporations that do need to be sued. There are these people that do need to be protected. So what has been your perspective of, you know, when litigation is absolutely appropriate and then the the abuse that we're seeing now, you know, the kind of ambulance chaser mentality?
1: Um, that's funny you say that because asbestos litigation is an, in reality – a specialized version of personal injury. So personal injury falls within the ambular chaser tag. Um, I like to say I was never one of those. I never participated in that. I never did the, the car wrecks or the whatever. And I have friends who do that and they're making a good living doing it. I'm making more money than me right now. Um, I also say that I was never a very good plaintiff lawyer in the sense that I think people sue too much. Um, so if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you're needed, you're hoping to make a living because people want to hire you to sue somebody. And I hear me saying, oh, you don't need to sue for that. Just send them this letter and just make them say, I'm sorry. Like, cause at the end of the day, would you just be happy? Wouldn't you be happy if somebody said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And you know, like, does it really have to be that you need? So again, I, I not I've said for years that like, I, I don't know how I could tell you the story about how I ended up in the plaintiff's litigation side. And then still I'm like, what happened? Um, but I, I think that, you know, and I've been involved in some cases where they're suing police and the cases you see though, where those like whoever's suing the police, I mean, it's just so, I mean, we got sued one time for throwing a flashbang for the damage caused by the flashbang we threw in the house, which was the house that was selling drugs. And it was this nasty house. So the like it burned through the floor and like, it was like a nasty ass mobile home or something. I'm not like a mobile homes. I lived in one for a little while in McAnope, Florida. Um, so, um, I, I just think people in the U.S. don't even understand what you're saying when it comes to frivolous lawsuits. That All they know is anybody can sue for anything now. Lawyers are held to an ethical standard or supposed to be that they're not supposed to take claims that have no basis. Um, And it happened like, Oh, well, they really slipped. So there's a basis. I'll sue. Or somebody called me last week and wants me to represent, was asking if I would represent them on their service dog discrimination case where they have a service dog and it's a Labradoodle, but does not wear a jacket for the dog. And So he took this dog into a couple of different establishments and um, he wants to sue the people for kicking him out because he got kicked out. And if you brought a Labradoodle into my business without a jacket on saying he's a service dog, he's like, oh, that's not what the the law says. It doesn't have to have a jacket on. Like, okay, well, I'm going to pass on this case and he'll find somebody who will take it. Um, Again, I'm not a good plaintiff lawyer in that way. So it's, it's amazing to me because I, I, when I was in Spain once and we were were involved in a car accident, it was not bad. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to want to, they're going to want to sue me. And they're like, oh no, there's, they won't sue you for this. Like like those kind of things don't happen. And I guess the UK also, I didn't realize that, but in Spain, like there's no car accident lawsuits. I couldn't believe that. You know how many lawyers would be out of a job if you couldn't sue for car accidents in this country? Um, yeah, I guess it's like, I'm not your typical lawyer.
0: Well, that's so. good. That's good. I mean, I had Mike Clarendon, <laughs> yeah. who works for a very big lawsuit. The deals are what we talked about, but he has his own, you know, own branch and he does workman's comp claims for first responders. And he was a firefighter, ended up as a chief and then transitioned out. Amazing guy. Steve Wingo, I talked about. Amazing guy. I've had some, um, Lisa Hule, um, another amazing woman who actually now, she was a prosecutor works for the the da's office um and then she ended up switching to defending first responders realizing that mental health is behind some of these cases now and as she points out yes there is a victim and she's not trying to you know take that away but as a defense as we talked about 20 years in our professions is a contributing factor you know, and, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. they, it's funny because when you look at homicide and suicide, they're very, very similar, you know, in in the kind of journey, too. So, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's some amazing lawyers out there. And that's why I try not to tar everyone with the same brush. But the abuse here that we see in the first responder community, I mean, the fact that you have to write war and peace every time you do a refusal in EMS is because of all that bullshit. Oh yeah. They chose not to go, yeah. they signed here at the end. That's all a medic should have to do. You know, you don't want to go? Okay. You're a grown-ass man or woman, sign here, I'm out of here. I shouldn't have to do a two-page essay on why you chose not to. That's that's on you. As long as you are AO times four, my job is done.
1: My um my husband is in the insurance world and he always says that my industry drives his field, and I always say his field drives my industry, because working in the the plaintiff's injury side for so long and seeing what insurance coverage may or may not be. But then, um, you know, I'm sure if, I don't even know if it's possible. If you really look at it, the way insurance has developed, and obviously insurance in this country is very different than others. I mean, that's a a hot topic all the time. Um, It probably, they probably drove each other. Um, So who knows? Somebody should do that documentary, although it probably wouldn't be very exciting to watch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, you were in litigation for a long, long time. You came from law enforcement. Talk to me about what made you decide to provide services to the, the very community you were a part of before you entered law.
1: Um, I knew when I left law enforcement that I would want to somehow give back someday. And I just didn't know what that meant. And, and honestly, over the years, I just kind of kept waiting for the perfect job to just float out of the sky and land in my lap because I don't didn't want to work for myself. Owning a business is a freaking beast, um, and you know, many things kind of came all together with that. I was working in the law firm world and and with you know strict hours, and I had one kid and two kids, and I have three kids and. And I want to be a good mom and I want to be the one that's there to, to pick them up if I can. And, and certainly I was making the money to be able to pay somebody to drive them and just this, that, and the other, but I didn't want to do that. And so I started to evolve in that way. And again, it comes down to if I'm working and I never saw myself as being a stay at home mom, but if I was going to work, then what I should, when I, I wanted what I did to matter. And if you combine all that with, I just think the law firm world. I did not like the law firm world. Um, I didn't like, I don't like litigation. Um, I certainly in that type of litigation. Um, no, no offense to any of my friends that are out there that are litigators, but I typically don't like the egos that come with successful litigators. Um, to me, it's, just do your job and stop running around beating your chest over it. I just like, I don't know. So multiple reasons I was just so unhappy with the law firm one and finally it was just this like I just had it kind of like with the SWAT team stuff and they're like screw it this is life's too short you know the magic job hasn't appeared out of the heavens for me yet and I know I want to do something with wellness I know I want to do work that can help cops feel better and I'm an attorney so you know I want to be able to give back in that way also and so all figured out so that started about two years ago and then working on the wellness and um you know i'm also a certified yoga instructor at this point and knowing and then like i said mentioned earlier that i went through the training for yoga for first responders which is a way to teach yoga in a way that's not like what i you know hippy dippy like it's i did the, i did one of the classes this morning and i just love it so much and i really wish i would have been taking it when i was on swat um and then I started my so I started it uh, officially started it a year ago and what even what I offered back then was very different than what I'm offering now because what I've realized is having conversations with law enforcement officers across the country, states where they're supported, states where they're not supported, cities like Chicago and Seattle where it's just awful, um, you know, a so city like Houston or and places in Florida where you have great governors and mayor city count everybody is supportive of them, um, but you know nothing's perfect so. Talking with people and realizing, like, I met a girl when I was at the yoga training, um, a fellow female SWAT operator, and she had been in some critical incidents and wanted some time off, and her department was super supportive of it. Like, yep, go take time off as much as you need. Your job's here when you come back, take care of you. And she got home, said so she, when she got home, she realized that she had no idea how to do that. that. She knew how to be a SWAT operator, she had a canine, she knew how to be a canine operator. She knew how to do all that stuff, but she had no idea how to take care of herself. And I think that that's getting better. Um, I think there's been a huge shift in the last couple of years, or I mean, probably more than that, but definitely a lot more and more all the time of wellness programs. But what I also learned from that conversation with, with her is that there's still a huge gap in saying, oh, you should do wellness, to what do you do every day for that? what does that mean what are well, what are the wellness activities that you should do and so even just since i started my business where i was offering a lot of things including access to me as an attorney for legal advice what i realized is that it starts with even uh, understanding what wellness is and I, you and i talked about this earlier but it's that it's what i call basic wellness basic training and it's what that i'm working on that i think by the time this episode releases it'll officially be launched is that I've created a course where it explicitly lays out what wellness training means and what activities are included in that. And these are like, here's the things you should be doing every day within an hour a day to find, to feel happy each day. And training people that it's not, you know, it's not a destination that you're waiting to all be happy when, I make sergeant. I'll be happy when I retire. Well, I'm going to tell you right now if you wait to be happy until you retire, you're going to be one of those that dies three months after you retire because you will have ruined your mental self and your physical self. And so, training people like what to do every day, how much time to spend, you know, ideas of how, what to do, how much time to spend on that. And that the purpose of my program, the wellness basic training program, is that you understand clearly what it means. And then at the end of it, you have a program that you've designed for you that you can implement, like ready, set, go, and that you can do all the time, because wellness is something every day, not a class that you take every six months. Um, and so, I still, also, still um, offer, not offer, I provide legal information. And what I've also realized is that the questions that I get more than anything are on workers' comp and like discrimination, harassment type stuff. And so my focus is going to become much more narrowed on providing information to help people in that way. So um, unfortunately, too many officers deal with workers' compensation issues, and it is different in every state. But I am in the process of, and I already have I meet attorney uh, attorneys that work in that deal with workers' comp issues specifically for first responders in different states that my goal is to have almost like a 50 state resource where you say, if this is your state, you want to know it, come to my website. Here's this, this, look it up. Oh, you're in Arkansas. Okay. Call this guy, this girl in Arkansas. And, you know, she'll be able to talk to you about that. Um, Because I think, especially the longer that you're in this profession, like you and I both know, I mean, you start to deal, recognize, see and feel the side effects or you are injured or like, I feel like one of the ways that I can, help from the legal aspect is make sure you understand the basics of it, the repercussions of it. Like, well, I don't want to make that worker's comp claim for whatever reason. I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you what happens if you don't make that claim. Let me tell you what happens if you don't make that claim and then you do get hurt later and then they're going to come back and say to you, that's not a covered claim. So, I mean, things like that, that people are dealing with all the time. So um, that's a long way of saying that's how I got to protect wealth, (laughs) see um, my goal, by the time I'm done, I want to have brought more happiness to the lives of 10,000 police officers. I say police just because that's the world that I lived in, but certainly I extend that to all first responders, dispatchers, EMT, um, probation, parole, and corrections. So we all see and hear and deal with the same things.
0: What I love about what you're offering is, like you said, you've got that whole... Whole element, there's a lot of great companies out there that are providing, you know, some really good wellness training. And it's not just, as I always say, like bouncy balls and stretchy bands. It's real, real wellness training. And we're talking about sleep and nutrition and, you know, spiritual health and all these other areas. But aside from the financial element, which, again, is is left out a lot, which I know was one of my big stressors because I was just so disorganized with money. I think a lot of that came from that just pure exhaustion but is the legal element you know and for like if it'd be my journey I ended up losing a house you know it would have been great to have talked to a lawyer along the way and find, okay where do I stand you know it was, it was from a divorce so there's that element too um and uh thank god it ended up being a blessing in disguise that house was terrible <laughs> but, so they can keep it but um you know th- that was a huge huge stressor is just not knowing where i stood legally so i've heard you talk about that it's not just the police duty related legal elements but also the you know what happens at home as well
1: yeah I, I definitely also get questions about like child custody stuff and i'm just gonna tell anybody that's dealing like those are messy um you talk about something that there's a lot of emotion ego tied to like those are messy um i've had somebody ask me questions about they oh, he thinks he's about to lose his house and they we talked about he's getting ready to have a call to try and because there are services out there that can help you negotiate down your, your debt and including some mortgage. And, you know, I helped him, I've dealt with a lot of that because even in the, first of all, I've taken four bar exams, Florida, New York, Texas, and Louisiana, and almost all of them have questions on the debt process, the debtor stuff. And it's, I hate it. Um, But What I know is that I've studied things that more than likely a law enforcement officer or first responder hasn't. And I want to share that. I want to help. And so um, I also think that who better to answer those questions for you, especially if they're not job related, than somebody who's experienced what your life is like, because there's nothing like it. And there's stresses that you deal with and those stressors impact all of your life. And so when you do have a stressor outside of the job, sometimes that can feel even bigger because you already have so much stress that comes from your job. And so I feel like uh, having somebody who understands you and gets you when you're dealing with those problems makes it just, it's that much better. It's what I call a culturally informed professional. So uh, like the therapist that I partnered with for some training in the fall, she's a licensed therapist out of California She's not in law enforcement, but she's what I call culturally informed because her husband's on the job, her dad was in the job, and she works only with first responders. So like that's the perfect therapist to go to because she she understands that's the world she lives in. She sees it, eats it, breathes it, breathes it, feels it. So, you know, that's what I know there's a lot of different ways that I can help. And I that's what I want to do, but also because, you know, I get it. I was there. And, you know, whether it's financial, like I'm gonna have some great training later this year with um jason horsher i always say his last name wrong he has the what's your emergency podcast but he does a training on the financial side on helping cops figure out ways to be get out of debt or reduce their debt without having to spend the rest of your life working overtime coming back to that whole sleep thing and to have more have, you know, less worry around finance and so You know, I have the basic training, but I also partner with a lot of subject matter experts. I want to have, I want to do some work with a sleep expert. I want to do some work with an, you know, exercise physiology expert, you know, things like that where, but for now it's, it's the basics Um, and, you know, understanding what basic well training, wellness training means. I want it to be something that every single academy does, that every single department does. I've done posts where I say that I think that every department should consider wellness training a high liability area. Um, because there's so many things you could prevent if you know burnout, you know mental health issues, drug addiction, you know all marriages failing, anger problems, violence, so many different things you could prevent if you could make this an area that you focus on just as much as you do, defensive tactics, driving firearms, they're all the same. they should be the same, and all of that comes down to dollars and cents, so. If you're decreasing liability, the reason why you get trained all the time on driving, defensive tactics, and um, whatever other high liability your department has is because that's the stuff that costs the department the most money. And if by providing wellness training, it's going to cost your department less money. So everybody go out there and tell your department that they need to be offering basic training, wellness basic training. That's my shameless
0: plug for the day. <laughs> no, plug away. Well that's the thing as well. I mean, whether it's O2X, they worked with Boston FD and had I think they saved I am thinking it was two million when they figured it out. Um, you know, that's even if you don't care about human beings, which to me, an HR and administration, that should be the core of what they care about. Actually altruistically yeah. care from the well being of your yeah. people. That is not the case in the real world in many, many places. So then the next go-to is, all right, then let's talk about dollars and cents. Same money. Yeah. yeah. So by investing, you know, what ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This is absolutely the case. Look at how much you spend on workman's comp claims, medical disability, line of duty deaths, you know, lawsuits. And then imagine, because especially the sleep deprivation, mistakes in, yes. you know, what we do. So many, I think, are tied to sleep deprivation. You know, the person who oh, reached yeah, for the- driving license from in the glove box at 2 a.m., how many hours did that officer worked when they, they shot that guy? You know, I mean, it absolutely was a huge mistake. But, you know, when you, when you take away sleep, there's a reason that special operations do it in their selection process. It's a form of torture. And now you're asking a responder to make a life or death, you know, decision at two in the morning in a tinted out car. You know, it's so So when you think of those proactive wellness initiatives, it would save hand over fist financially for a department.
1: Hundred percent agree. Everything you just said, yes. Sleep torture. Like we've all had babies, and like my kids are newborns, and you you have to wake up every two hours. I mean, that is torture. Um, and it's fine; you know, it doesn't last forever. But yeah, I mean, it, it is. It should be a high liability area that every department sets aside money to spend, to require to to do wellness training on a regular basis, not the once a year check the box create programs, train your employees, create, train, have the executives start get trained on how to create these environments where you're continually encouraging and creating leaders in, in every individual. And that's what wellness training does is you're creating individual leaders that has positive ripple effects within the department and throughout your entire community. It's, it would improve, it would improve community relations. I mean, it could do so much positive. It, there's so much positive to come from it, um, but it requires time and money. and you know, It's not to me. So it's not just setting. Up. I think you can get departments who can say, "All right, we'll pay for it," but they're also getting them to carve out the time and and pay their pay their officers to to come to the training and, and to do it regularly or, you know, whatever. So, but yeah, it's like you say, it comes down to spend some money to save a lot of money.
0: Absolutely. Well, we've been talking for almost two hours now, so I want to transition to some closing questions so I can you know be mindful of your time. The first one I love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated?
1: Well, I love reading. And it just so happens, I think today maybe is, or maybe tomorrow, Friday, I have a post schedule that's my top five books. And these are my top five, like, well, I would say self help books, but I've posted some of them before. But, um, <clears throat> I love Atomic Habits um, by James Clear. And and I feel like when I was reading it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been saying some of this stuff and people are going to think that I'm just copying James Clear. But it really doesn't matter to me where you get your information from if you do it. Um, I'm an abundance mentality person, not a scarcity mentality person. It doesn't just have to come from me. It can come from anywhere as long as you just do it. Um, I love The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Um, the one in there, one of the agreements is don't take things personal. I think that one agreement, if you really try and live it and it's really hard to do something I work on all the time, it improves my marriage. It improves my relationship with my family, my, some family members. It allows me to let go of stories that I've held on to for 15 years, um, it just, if you really think about some situation, that's hard and you tell yourself, don't take it personally. Like really, really think about what that means. You could let go of whatever you're holding on to from that. Because a lot of times, whatever's happening has nothing to do with you. Still doesn't excuse whatever crappy behavior you might've suffered from it, but it, it is what it is. Um, I mean, I've said seven habits of highly effective people. I've been studying that book for probably over 25 years. Um, if you really if you haven't ever read Body Keep Score um, I is it oh, I can't remember his name it's, a it's Dutch Van last name. Something, Yeah. Yes, Van der Veckel or something like that. Um, I'll say two things about that book. One is if you've never read it, it really is eye-opening to understand how much your whole body holds on to trauma. And two second thing I'll say is if when you work in a job where you deal with a lot of trauma, as for me, I don't do it anymore. But even then I did that book on audible and I couldn't do it all at one time. I had to take a break from he- hearing about all the trauma. And what I realized is that I was becoming very tense, just hearing about it. And it was like triggering something. And so it's, a, it gives me the chill. Like it's, I highly recommend that book, do it on audible when you're walking or folding clothes or washing the car, or whatever thing you do, like full laundry, that takes time. I have three kids, so I do laundry all the time. Um, and the last one is Breathe by James Nestor. It's another one like The Body Keeps Score in the sense that you will, it is mind-blowing how much not breathing properly affects everything about you, even down to the structure of your teeth. It's amazing. I also did that one on Audible. Oh, another one is Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. I've really gotten into studying like the Stoics I think that if all police officers could study the Stoics, policing would be fundamentally changed.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you for those. Um, What about a movie and or documentary that you love?
1: I haven't watched a documentary in a while, to be honest. And because I have three young kids, by the time my day's over, I'm so tired. Can I just say TV show? Yeah. Yeah, my absolutely. favorite TV show ever is Ted Lasso, ever, like ever, ever. I say everyone should laugh. If you can laugh, it makes things better. And Ted Lasso, I will say the second season wasn't as good as the first, in my opinion, but I freaking love that show. And then um, but nonfiction books I read, by the way, um, I have read a lot of Jack Reacher books, and there's a new series on um prime uh whatever prime video yeah
0: streaming amazon prime Prime.
1: yeah um they have a reacher series that i liked um because he's very much like so tom cruise did a couple reacher movies which totally are not right because reacher is supposed to be like six five and very imposing and tom cruise is like five five so it totally didn't work but this dude's huge in the series so I like that one um It may not surprise you to know that I watched SEAL Team on TV, that TV series, Um, and they did in the the last season of the last, the last episode of the last season, they brought up uh, psychedelics and treatment for TBI. Oh, really? Um, Good. Uh, Yeah, the psychological trauma, it's a part of traumatic brain injuries but also just the psychological trauma of doing you know on a very intense job like that for so long and that psychedelics treat all of it but they had to do it when they were out of country not in country um so that immediately popped into my head And obviously that's obviously it's not a true show but they base it in fact so
0: it sounds like um, their military advisor was a good man or woman certainly
1: yeah um I'm sure I'm going to get off this and think about some really great, awesome movie that I love, and I'm not thinking of it right now.
0: No, don't worry about it at all. TV shows are great. All right, next question. And for everyone listening, if you hear heavy breathing behind me, it's not some pervert. It's my dog. She pushed away into the office. Um, (laughs) Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Ryan Holiday. He's the Daily Stoic. I think he would do it, too. I've been intending to start hounding him with emails just to beg him to do like a, I just think if if he could have this conversation, everything that he does, but from the perspective of what the possibility that lies from the law enforcement world, studying Stoics, it's basically is that like, part of it is like the, the, the fourth ag- agreement. Don't take things personal. I mean, don't tie yourself too much up in your things. And, I mean, it's so good that Ryan Holiday, and I think he would. If you got um, Andy whatever Podicum mm-hmm. on from Headspace, love Headspace, literally. um Two things I'll say. Well, if you can get Andy Podicum on, you can get Ryan Holiday on. And you, Jocko Willing, are you kidding me? You can get Ryan Holiday. <laughs> and um, you need to tell Andy to make a law enforcement first responder subscription for Headspace because they won't pay the $99. But That's a great I think idea. It's worth it. That's- but we need to tell them to give, you need to tell them to give first responder. Like during COVID, they were, I think they did something for free for a while. Like during the, the you know, the beginning when the world was shut down, I think they gave it for free for a while or something. I can't remember. But I just like they got to make I think I love everything about Headspace. I love, all, I've done their move stuff. I listen to the focus music stuff sometimes. I do the meditations almost every day. Um, I try to do it every day. Every once in a while, I'll listen to something else, but usually I'll do Headspace and then that just because I want to use the Headspace. They have great videos. They have kids' meditations. My kids like watching their videos sometimes with me. Um, yeah, so get Andy to do a launch, a first responder subscription. And sorry to everybody else out there paying $100. I do too, but we, we need this to be in the hands of first responders. Um, The Founders of Intelligent Change, that's another one. They have the the five-minute journal, which I talk about all the time. I use that too. Yeah, the Founders of Intelligent Change. They have a podcast, so you need to go on their podcast, and then they can come on yours.
0: Brilliant. All right, well, I appreciate all those. Thank you so much. So last question before we make sure where people can find you and then obviously the, the website, what do you do to decompress?
1: Exercise. Um meditate, read, and watch TV. But what I mean by that is, is like I'm sitting next to my, on the couch with my husband and I don't just go on and on. It's like I said, I sit down the other day and I'm good for about an hour and then I want to go to bed. I freaking sleep because um, I I have to sleep. Perfect day is I get nine hours. I said that to somebody on a podcast and she's like, whoa. I'm like, listen, I have seen a perfect day is nine hours. That doesn't happen. I will say this, and this is a different conversation. I don't think it's open up anything crazy. Um, CBD will, it helps decrease inflammation and anxiety. And, um, I have hip and back issues, which is an ego thing because it changes what I want to do for exercise. And also it just hurts. And it's, you know, it's like I don't want to take steroids all the time. And, um, but sometimes my orthopedic doctor is like, well, just, you know, you got to knock down the inflammation so the body can start to do what it needs to do. But okay, great. But in the meantime, if I could just take something more natural instead of steroids to decrease inflammation in my body, like drinking turmeric tea or taking CBD at the end of the day. Is it? I can't take it during the day. It makes me very sleepy. So it's good. Um, and it helps also with anxiety. So I'm not prescribing anything. Don't listen to me at all. Talk to your medical professional. This is the attorney of me saying... That you should go talk to a medical professional if you want to try CBD. I'm saying that works for me to decompress for bed. Because sometimes I, my mind goes crazy and I can't sleep. And I know that's a problem for all, a lot of first responders is you can't turn your brain off.
0: Well, speaking of CBD, I've talked about it for years. I've had, um, I use Red Pill Medical CBD. And the reason I use them specifically is they have a zero THC. So... Even though it's so hard persuading responders because they're so terrified. They're fine with their, you know, opiate prescriptions, but they're terrified of CBD. Um, it has zero THC. So you're fine with, with the, the, you know, the blood tests or the P test, excuse me, but I swear by it. My little boy takes it because he used to get wheezy and that went away. My wife had really bad Mm. anxiety. That went away. Um, and it's, it's just, it's great. And I take it the same as you. I take it in the evening. It doesn't make me sleepy, but I find that's, I didn't used to get the best benefit. I used to do it in the morning, but then I know I took alcohol out a couple of months ago and, and now the CBD seems to have a lot more effect in the evening mm-hmm. for some reason. So, so yeah, yeah, I swear by it.
1: I get mine from my chiropractor and I also get a lot of some of my vitamins, especially some of the vitamins I give my kids, like the things that help prevent COVID sickness, like, you know, really good, high quality vitamin C. Um, and I trust her getting it from her because like she even looks into like the, the additives and the vitamins, like she won't buy, she won't get vitamins that have like a, some kind of additive in the capsule that's not good for you. So I got I, in fact, I just got a text from my chiropractor saying, come by and get this, uh, like I'm getting more vitamin C for my kids and CBD for me. So um, I admit, I I get what those any first responders saying. I mean, like, oh, what are you a druggie now? You're taking CBD? Like, it's not that. It's not marijuana. It's not THC. Um, and if you live in a state where that's legal, do that if you need to. I mean, I don't know. I actually don't know the laws around that with law enforcement. But, um, but yeah, I I am a big fan because for many reasons, preventative, proactive preventative measures can only bring good things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Well, for people listening, then I'm sure they would love to learn more about you and, and find the, the, the programs that you have to offer. So where are the best places online?
1: The best place is my website. Um, it's where you can find links to everything else, but, dot uh, myprotectivewellness.com. So the, the, the business is called Protective Wellness, but just put my, and I did that on purpose because I want, so everything I do is because I want you to feel like it's for you, that you're coming up with a plan for you that works for you, that you can put into your life because my routines are not going to be your routines. And, um, you know, that might be similar, might have similar pieces, but you do it the way that works for you. So myprotectivewellness.com. And then on there, you'll see the social media links and then I'm on lots of social media Um, but that's the best place to find them and definitely follow and subscribe. Um, Sign up for my newsletter. I would love that because I definitely give out a lot of free training tips and including legal information in my newsletters. And excited to say that by the time this comes out, I will have the wellness basic training will be launched and um, well, kind of relaunched because I had already launched it, but I made some edits. And then I started a survey um, to gather information. And and this has been done other places, but I'm doing it on my site where I gather information about the stressors that you experience as a first responder and what you're doing in your wellness. Cause I want to see what different pieces of people are doing. You know, are are you meditating? Are you reading? Do you journal? Do you, you know, yes, we're all sleep deprived. Yes, we're all, but like real facts and and data. And if you go in there and you click the link, you can fill out the, and see the, the survey. But then more importantly, you'll end up seeing where you fall in that. Because I think it's cool to see. Um, first of all, I think you'll see that you're not alone. And I think that's a lot of times, especially I felt that way, that I feel like, oh, this is just me. I'm the only one having this problem. And that's not true. So um, I think it's just great to see that you're not alone and, and fi- even find some support in the numbers, um, even if you're not even talking to anybody about it. But go on there and, and fill out that survey. Um, and sign
0: up for the newsletter brilliant well Bridget I want to say thank you so much firstly for your patience because uh, we had a storm here when we were recording and my German Shepherds were freaking out and coming in and out of the office um, so thank you for that but also thank you for for telling your story I mean it's, it's such a powerful journey that you've been on and you have as you said that kind of cultural lens now um, especially with the law side which I think is quite rare so I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time today
1: well, thank you so much. I'm a, I'm a big fan and follower. I'm so happy to be here and keep doing what you're doing because it matters. Because I know people are quick to tell you the bad things; they're not so quick to tell you the good things. And but but just know that what you're putting out there in the world is having positive ripple effects, and you're improving the lives of everybody that's listening. So keep doing it.